I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. City Observatory is a daily source of data analysis and policy recommendations on how to make cities successful. The site helps readers separate fact from fiction when it comes to cities. This week, we talked to City Observatory founder and economist Joe Courtright. Joe, I went to cityobservatory.org today and found what must be the world's most confusing headline, higher inequality neighborhoods reduce inequality. Explain. Well, we were looking at a story that appeared in the New York Times over the weekend that looked at a neighborhood in Chelsea in Manhattan. And what it showed is that in in that particular neighborhood, you have uh, about a third of the residents living in public housing and uh, the remaining two-thirds in very high-income areas or very high-income housing. And it's hard to find a place that's got a more stark divide uh, between the wealthy and the poor than this, this gentrified neighborhood in Manhattan. But while it's apparent that there's inequality there, it turns out that the lower income people who live in public housing in that neighborhood do much better economically uh, than people who live in other public housing in New York, that is public housing in poorer neighborhoods. And uh, a study that was put together by New York University came to the conclusion that public housing residents who live in high income neighborhoods or in neighborhoods that are gentrifying had noticeably higher incomes than public housing residents living in less affluent areas. Why would that be? Well, there's, there's what we would call a neighborhood effect, that having a, a, a good neighborhood around you with safer streets, with more economic opportunities, uh, with better schools, produces more opportunity for the low-income residents of those areas. And in fact, the study showed that uh, the kids who lived in public housing and had nearby high-income residents, not only went to better schools, but had better uh, academic results as well. And this confirms something that we've known for some time, which is that um, neighborhood effects, that is the the well-being of your neighborhoods, the economic situation of your neighbors, has a huge impact, uh, particularly on low-income households. So it's bad to be poor, but it's worse to be poor and live in a neighborhood where a lot of your neighbors are also poor. One of the points the story in the New York Times made about the Chelsea neighborhood was that prices had gone up. So prices of everyday goods had gone up uh, and some everyday goods that had served, let's say an ethnic market uh, that was predominant in Chelsea at one time, those goods are no longer available. They are farther away. What What's your response to that? Well, we, we know that um, that that there's been an influx of um, retail and service businesses that cater to higher income people. And so on average, um, it's definitely the case that there are more sort of higher income things around them. And it's also the case that for for like discount shopping that residents of not only this neighborhood in Manhattan, but most neighborhoods in Manhattan often go to outlying boroughs or across the river to New Jersey to get take advantage of discount shopping. Um, so yeah, that's certainly the case. But um, the other thing that we know is that, um, as this study showed, um, the households who live in the um, either the higher income neighborhoods, that is in public housing in higher income neighborhoods or neighborhoods with increasing income, um, are seeing a big gain in their incomes, which probably more than offsets uh, the change in prices. 
So now we're into this confusing discussion on gentrification. It has, it is confusing. It has intensified as people have started to return to cities. Break it down for me. What is gentrification? How widespread is it? And should we be concerned? Well, there's, there's a lot of confusion about how different people define gentrification. And generally, people associate it with a neighborhood seeing an influx of better educated, higher income, and fewer people of color moving into a neighborhood. And people, I think, assume that that automatically means that, that poor or less well-educated and, and people of color tend to automatically move out of neighborhoods. That, that, that there must be this one-for-one -one substitution. And, and actually, what, what the careful studies um, show, and there was a new one released uh, just this past week um, by the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank, is that actually out-migration rates from gentrifying neighborhoods are no higher than other poor neighborhoods that don't gentrify. So people are mo no more likely to move out of um, poor neighborhoods if they gentrify or if they don't. And really what happens, what changes is who moves in. A different set of people move in. And neighborhoods are always in flux. The other thing that we know is that, that neighborhoods that don't gentrify don't stay the same. Um, they tend to lose population. And we went back to 1970 and looked at all the high-poverty neighborhoods in the United States. And the ones that didn't see some improvement, didn't gentrify in one way or another, um, lost population. And over 40 years in, on the aggregate, they lost about 40% uh, of their population. The other thing we know is that the gentrification, particularly if we define it as a neighborhood going from being a high-poverty neighborhood to just an average or below-average level of poverty, uh, is extremely rare. So if in 1970 you lived in a high-poverty neighborhood, uh, chances are if you came back 40 years later, uh, the chances would be about 1 in 20 that that neighborhood would be below-average poverty 20 years later. So when it happens, gentrification is really striking, and it captures our attention. But what we don't notice is the fact that most poor neighborhoods are persistently poor, and they lose population. How to Promote Equity and Economic Mobility is the title of a recent policy brief from City Observatory. What is equity, and how should policy be used to promote it? In the United States, we usually talk about equity in terms of equality of opportunity, and we have sort of this you know, American myth or Horatio Alger story that we say, uh, it doesn't matter uh, to what station in life you're born, anybody can grow up to be successful. And as it turns out, as a statistical matter, that's just not true. And it's, it's not true based on your race and ethnicity. And importantly, it's not true based on where you grow up. And in particular, we know that the kind of neighborhood that you grow up in particularly if you are poor, has a big impact on your economic opportunity, your, your lifetime economic choices. There's a terrific study done by uh, Raj Chetty and his colleagues um, at Harvard that looked at over a 30-year period economic mobility of kids growing up in different areas. And one of the things they found, in addition to what we know about the importance of, for example, single-headed households, that is typically moms raising kids by themselves, um, we found that um, uh, economic segregation, that is when poor people are concentrated into neighborhoods uh, of disproportionately large numbers of poor people, that their economic outcomes are worse. Um, so that's what we are focusing on when we talk about um, equity and economic mobility. How is it that we um, create neighborhoods where um, there are more opportunities for 
uh, particularly kids from low-income families, uh, to be successful. And so what are the policies, Joe, if we want to, what I would call preserve the American dream, you're contending it's a myth and I get it, but if we really want equality of opportunity, which I think this country is built on, how do we get it from a policy standpoint? What would accelerate, what would get us closer to that? I, I think there's several things. One is, I think we have to look for opportunities to avoid concentrating poverty. And one of the things, unfortunately, we've done with a lot of our public housing and and subsidies for, for low-income housing is built more low-income housing in the neighborhoods where it already exists. And that tends to perpetuate the cycle of poverty. A second thing we can do, and we've talked about this in the context of gentrification, is take, an, take advantage of, of the renewed interest in urban living to encourage the development of more mixed-income neighborhoods. And that is, you know, they're, they're look, look for opportunities as, as neighborhoods gentrify to preserve a range of housing types at different price levels so that, that, that high-income, middle-income, and low-income households can all live in the same areas. And then, uh, the, the, you know, I think the third thing is to think about the way that we build community and public spaces and create opportunities for, for people from a wide variety of backgrounds to interact. Um, public schools are an important part of that, but we also need to think about the civic commons, places like, places, places like parks and libraries, where people are going to interact with one another and build social relationships and build community, because we think that plays an important role in uh, enabling people to uh, take advantage of these neighborhood effects where they exist. City Observatory has written recently about how we've made great neighborhoods illegal in the U.S. Explain what you mean. Well, when you when you look at real estate markets across the United States, it, it, it almost always turns out that some of the most valuable real estate in any metropolitan area is in an older pre-World War II neighborhood with gridded streets uh, that are often very narrow um, that have a mix of different housing types, so there's multifamily right next door to single family, and where shops and businesses are interspersed with residential uses. And uh, the example that we use in the post that we did on uh, illegal neighborhoods is in, in Portland, Oregon. There's this old neighborhood platted 150 years ago that has all those characteristics. And in Portland and in most places in the United States, it would be simply illegal to build that kind of neighborhood today notwithstanding the fact that it's the most valuable, most popular kind of real estate for people to live in. Uh, and through a combination of zoning ordinances, parking requirements, um, street design standards, the replacement of the traditional gridded street pattern with cul-de-sacs, and, and especially this idea that we need to widely separate homes from businesses and not mix multifamily and single family means that uh, we've made it illegal in most places to build the kind of neighborhood that America, Americans increasingly show um, in the marketplace they want to live in. Okay, that's one of the things we get wrong about how how we make cities. What are the other things? What are, what are the predominant myths about how cities succeed that we need to sort of beat back with with the data that that city observe and the analysis that City Observatory is providing? Well, I think. I think one of our problems is that, uh, that a lot of the metrics that we use to, to guide policy decisions are, are biased in subtle ways against building great places. And that's particularly true when we think about uh, transportation. 
that we transportation is is the domain of engineers and engineers you know bring numbers to the fight and have have standards they have standards like street width standards they measure traffic flows um, they have manuals that say how many parking spaces we need and all of those kind of rules of thumb really put getting there or moving ahead of being there that, so that we engineer the experience in cities not for the people who live there and not for the people who are spending time there, but for the people who are traveling through there with the objective of getting people to move as quickly as possible. And, and we really are, I think, coming to understand that, that cities work best when we design them for people who are uh, occupying city space, who are walking, who are cycling, who are shopping, who are lingering in public spaces, and that when we design cities to rapidly move cars, we make them really um, unattractive places for people to live. And we simply don't have the kind of quantitative standards to describe being there and ex the experience of place that we can use to balance against these, these seemingly objective and rigorous um, uh, traffic standards that um, really dominate um, the way we build cities. Joe, it sounds like you're building a city in the background. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, we are. We are, doing, we are engineering a, a better city, at least in my, our neighborhood here. <laughs> oh, you mentioned indicators, and I want to stick on that just one minute. Uh, it's something that drives me kind of batty. As you know, a lot of cities develop indicators to measure their success, and and with the theory, it seems the more indicators, the better. So you end up with 82 indicators. You have a different approach. I mean, your approach basically is if there, if you know a few things about cities, you can probably determine their success. What are those few indicators that really make sense and make a difference? We think that there are four four key things that cities have to worry about. And then in each of these areas, there are different indicators you can use. The, the first one is talent. We know that the biggest single factor explaining the economic success of cities is how well-educated their populations are. So all cities need to pay attention to that. And because talented people are highly mobile, it's, it's not just a matter of uh, educating your population, which is critically important, but building a place that talented people want to live. Because if you don't, um, the people you educate, your kids, will go somewhere else. The, the second thing that we know is important is innovation, that talented people um, come up with new ideas, new ideas for businesses, but then new ideas for how to make communities better. And uh, each community needs to foster um, innovation and think about how they um, create an environment where new ideas can uh, come up and also be implemented. Um, the third thing is connections, because what cities really do, and this is, I think, something that Jane Jacobs argued very effectively decades ago, is they bring people together. And we know in terms of, of economic opportunity and, and promoting equity and economic mobility that the role that cities play in connecting people and helping them find their way um, economically and physically um, is, is what helps drive city economies. And the final piece is um, uh, what we call distinctiveness. Um, every city is different. Every, sh every city should understand um, its own DNA and what its unique advantages are and build on those. And I think one of the unfortunate uh, tendencies, particularly in the economic development arena, is for um, every city to copy one, one strategy, whatever seems to be the most popular strategy of the day, whether it's convention centers or ballparks or 
biotechnology or green industries. And in reality, every city can't be the best at everything. Um, so what you have to do is figure out what you're really good at and build on that. And that's a much more durable basis for success. So build talent, encourage innovation, and make sure your city is a place that connects people and does that socially and physically, and build on your community's distinctiveness and be the best city that you can be and not try to copy what other people do. City Observatory has just celebrated its one-year anniversary. Congratulations, Joe. Uh, what's on the horizon for City Observatory? Based on the work that we've done in our first year, the the overarching theme that we think people really need to be paying attention to is what we call the shortage of cities. And by that, I mean that the demand for urban living in the United States is increasing very dramatically. More and more people are deciding that they want to live in cities. And that's creating a huge demand for urban living. And unfortunately, we're not building enough new cities or expanding um, the supply of housing in the cities that we have now fast enough to meet that demand. And that, that really means a couple of things. First of all, it's raising affordability issues because the growing demand is outpacing supply and pushing up rents, particularly in desirable neighborhoods. We know that public policy is still geared to a very different era, an era when everybody thought we'd rely exclusively on automobiles for transportation and where cities were actually declining and not growing. And we probably need to give a lot more thought to how we uh, accommodate housing and um, do it in ways that aren't so automobile dependent as, as we have in the past. Um, and we're also really interested in this idea of what we call diverse and inclusive neighborhoods. We know that a lot of places in the United States are segregated by race and ethnicity and by income, but we know that there are a growing number of places that, that really exemplify some of the values that we think Americans have, that are, that are places that are diverse, that, that represent the, the mix of different races and ethnicities that we have in the United States, but also represent a different range of different uh, income groups as well. So we're in the process of identifying what we call uh, America's most diverse, inclusive neighborhoods, those places that really do um, exemplify high levels of, of diversity and inclusion. Um, we'll be looking at that. And then uh, we have another, a number of other initiatives to look at this issue of the shortage of cities and how we help cities in the United States um, grapple with this issue. Joe, I love it. I love the work you're doing at City Observatory. Uh, I've been... Um... I've been most fortunate to work with you over the past dozen years, and your work just keeps getting better. And for all of us who care about the future of cities, uh, it's really nice to have you doing this work on a daily basis now, uh, sharing it with the world so that we can all take it, use it, and make our cities more successful. Thanks so much for being with us on Night Cities. Joe Courtright is founder of City Observatory. You can find it at cityobservatory.org. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.